Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. If you like what we do, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. That way, more people will find out about our content and you'll be notified every time we do a new video. Our guest today is Steve Gorham, Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of four books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development with over 100,000 copies in print. Steve's new book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, came out August 1st of this year. Thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn Show, Mr. Gorham. How are you today? Great to join you, Doc. I'm doing very, very well. Fantastic. You know, most Americans distrust the media. One of the issues that plays into that is climate alarmism. Headlines routinely proclaim human CO2 emissions are causing hurricanes to become more frequent, to become stronger. But that's not really the case, is it? No, it really isn't. The, uh, the media is amazing what's going on with the, uh, the fear of man-made warming. Um, I call that climatism. That was a term I used in my first two books about ideology. We actually have a couple presidential candidates that are now using that term. Uh, Mr. Ramaswamy and Mr. Trump are both using uh, the term climatism. But if you hear an article in the press on climate change, it's likely that, that many things in that article are wrong. And as you say, hurricanes are one of those things. Uh, we've had one this year uh, uh, that has come ashore in the U.S., uh, Hurricane Adalia. It was a strong storm, Category 3, came across Florida. And, of course, the uh, news media was ringing with all kinds of uh, narrative about how uh, we're making uh, hurricanes stronger and more frequently. Uh, more frequent. But uh, if you look at history, hurricanes are not an infrequent thing. <laughs> We've had about 300 of them since 1850, uh, according to data from NASA. And about uh, uh, 30% of those are typically strong storms, category three, four, or five. We've also had uh, multiple years. Uh, 12 years when we've had two Category 3 or stronger storms hit the U.S. So having hurricanes is not uh, anything unusual. Uh, we've only had one come ashore this year, though, and usually the average is about two hurricanes make landfall every year. But more interesting uh, is that the number of hurricane landfalls has actually been declining uh, for about the last 100 years, according to data from NOAA, uh, from NOAA the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We used to get about 2.1, now we're down to about 1.9, but in any case, uh, each year, but in any case, they're flat and they've been declining. So uh, it's not what you hear in the press, of course. The press would be telling you all sorts of other things about uh, about how your neighbor neighbor's SUV is causing hurricanes, but uh, <laughs> they're really a natural phenomenon. You know, this whole thing about CO2, um I'm not the sharpest knife in the firm or the brightest bulb in the drawer, but I do remember a little bit from biology when I was in school many, many years ago. And it seems to me that plants need CO2, which we naturally exhale, um, you know, to survive. We breathe in the oxygen, the plants breathe in the CO2. And you have guys like Al Gore and John Kerry saying, oh, no, 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 CO2 is evil. We got to get rid of CO2. And I'm wondering if these guys would be willing to take one for the team and just, you know, put their heads inside a hermetically sealed bag so they didn't, you know, they didn't emit any CO2 themselves. You know, lead by example. I, I don't know what your thoughts would be on that, but 
Well, it is true that uh, people uh, who are burning sugars in their body, as we all do continuously, we breathe in only a trace of carbon dioxide, CO2, but we exhale about two pounds a day. And what we exhale is about a uh, hundred times, the concentration is about a hundred times what we breathed in. And I like to, uh, when I speak to groups, I, I like to ask them some questions and get some, uh, some shout outs from the audience. And one of my favorites is a little bit zany. What do cannabis growers know that the Environmental Protection Agency apparently doesn't know? And the answer, of course, is that carbon dioxide is plant food. Any marijuana grower worth his or her salt is pumping carbon dioxide into the greenhouse to make their crop grow bigger and faster. And as a matter of fact, the, the 45 uh, uh, food crops of the world that provide 95% of our food, the top food crops, all grow bigger and faster with higher levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So literally, if there's one compound we could put into the into the biosphere that's absolutely great for the environment. Carbon dioxide is that compound. Yeah, today we're calling carbon dioxide a pollutant. Yeah. And, and we have every uh, company and every university counting their carbon dioxide footprint. Just very, very foolish. Yeah, except for all the, uh, the Hollywood types who uh, uh, fly in their private jets off to all these uh, climate alarmism summits and, you know, uh, different parts of the world, they they don't seem yeah. to be too worried about their carbon pr- footprint. Yeah, the, the the private planes that uh, John Kerry, for example, flies and says he knows he flies them, but he's got too many important things to do <laughs> uh, to emit a lot of carbon dioxide. But again, the 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 great thing is that this isn't bad for the environment. Uh, the real problem is the delusion that people are under with the ideology of climatism. Yeah, absolutely. So. The media, you know, we talked about there's they're saying that we're seeing stronger storms globally. Obviously, that's not happened. You 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 mentioned that the uh, uh, the annual rate of hurricanes is actually down a little bit. They also keep insisting that global temperatures are at an all time high. I mean, they they report it as if this is objective fact, but that's not really happening either, is it? No, it isn't. We had an article come out in July from a scientist who claimed that July was the hottest month in 180,000 years. And that was trumpeted. These articles come out and they are trumpeted through the media. Uh, NPR, USA Today, CNN, all these places run the story. Uh, it's never challenged, but it's complete nonsense. I mean, there, there, is, there are huge amounts of evidence that uh, our climate and global temperatures were warmer a thousand years ago. Uh, for example, in Southwest Greenland, when the Vikings settled there, there were trees in Southwest Gr- Greenland a thousand years ago. There's nothing there now except scrub grasses. It was warmer warmer a thousand years ago than today. Two thousand years ago, when the Romans conquered the Mediterranean, the, the Roman soldiers in those little skirts, and they were growing uh, olives in what was to become Germany. At that time, it was warmer 4,000 and 8,000 years ago. And these periods were centuries long at, at a time when it was warmer than today. And one real good example out of, out of many examples is the Rhone Glacier in Switzerland. If any of your viewers have been to central Switzerland to see the Rhone Glacier, it's a big ice field, a mountainside to mountainside. The Rhone, it's the source of the Rhone River, which flows out of there into France and down in the Mediterranean. 
Now, this glacier, the Rhone Glacier, has been receding for uh, more than a century as we've had a gentle warming. But um, every time the glacier pulls back, they find things like uh, wagon wheels under it, and they find horse bridles, and they find uh, a 4,000-year-old wood. Uh, There was uh, one scientist by the name of Christian Schluter who estimated that that for 6,000 of the last 10,000 years, there was no ice in this valley. Uh, so we've had many, many periods when it's, when it's warmer than today. Uh, our temperatures today are up about uh, two degrees, about one degree Celsius in 140 years, about two degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, nothing to be alarmed about. The planet isn't boiling, and, and we've had warmer times in the past. Absolutely. You know, I noticed for years the climate alarmists in the media and academia kept warning us about the dangers of global warming. But then, a few years ago, with no warning whatsoever, almost overnight, the, the, those in the know in the climate alarmist community dropped the phrase global warming and replaced it with a more nebulous term, climate change. Why, why do you think they did that? <laughs> Well, um, probably because we went through some periods when it wasn't warming much. Um, it, and climate change can capture everything. You know, it's, uh, if we have a, uh, a cold spell or we have a, uh, a major hurricane or we have a drought or a flood or, or a heat wave, all of these things can be due to climate change. And so it, they're, they're very, very effective. Uh, the, the uh, proponents of uh, man-made warming, very, very effective with with terms and labels, carbon footprint and carbon pollutant and, uh, you know, all these things. So they've gotten very, very good at this to try and convince people that we're in kind of a strange situation. But another example is um, is state high temperature records. Um, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, keeps a database called the state extremes. And so they have the record temperature for every state that's been recorded. They have the record hot temperature, cold temperature, uh, rainfall, and, and other sorts of things. And Arkansas, for example, your, your uh, home area there, <laughs> um, I don't know if, if uh, your folks know what the record was for Arkansas. Uh, it was 120 degrees Fahrenheit, said in Ozark, and that was August 10th, 1936. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, 19, the 1930s were a very warm decade. Uh, 23 of the 50 state high records were set in 1936. And as a matter of fact, 70% of the state record highs were set prior to 1970, 36 of the 50 records. So that's just another little indication that even in recent history, we've had warmer times than, than we have today. One of the problems, I think, about dealing with this bumper sticker mentality, global warming, climate change, is trying to get them to define their terms. I mean, if it is a sunny day in the middle of July, and then the next day you have a nice, gentle summer rain, the climate changed from one day to the next, right? Yeah, well, we're really talking about weather, and they, they, they substitute climate all the time. Climate change occurs over 30 to 50 years, typically. 
where weather like a storm, a hurricane, that's, that's, a, that's a weather thing. That's not a climate thing. But again, we're, we're submerged in this. And the crazy thing is that we have now uh, this drive to get, net, to, get to net zero. Um, and 180 of, uh, heads of state of the nations of the world, just about everybody, say they think that humans are causing dangerous climate change and the world is spending over two, $2 trillion, I'm sorry, over a trillion dollars a year to try and get to net zero by 2050. So it is, uh, it is actually the biggest superstition in modern history. It has captured most of the population, despite the fact that the evidence doesn't really show that we're in abnormally warm times. So one of the things I picked up from your book is that the Earth's climate is actually very complex. Yes. So when the academics and the media are trying to scaremonger us, uh, do you think maybe they're relying on the ignorance of the average American about how complex our climate really is, about how um, insane it is to try to predict global trends because you have really different things going on in really in, in different parts of this big old world? Well, I don't know. A lot of climate scientists have focused on carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and they, and they say that dominates things, and that's, that's really crazy. The, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a carbon dioxide cycle defined by the United Nations and by scientists uh, because carbon dioxide comes out of the oceans. It goes in the atmosphere. It's reabsorbed by the oceans. And when plants die, they emit carbon dioxide. When they grow, carbon dioxide is absorbed. So we have this carbon dioxide moving all around, uh, but we also have a much, about a thousand times as big in terms of energy as the water cycle. And that in, involves all of the world's oceans and the world's atmosphere and the ice caps and the rivers. And, and that really is the thing that dominates Earth's climate. The idea that, the, that CO2, we have only four molecules of every 10,000 in the atmosphere our uh, carbon dioxide and the amount that humans could have added in all of our history from all of our industries is only a fraction of one of those 10,000 molecules. Very, very small. Yet climate scientists today seem to think that, that CO2 is what is driving the climate rather than the water cycle. It just, you know, I call this the, uh, the, the fleet wagging the dog theory. <laughs> uh, but uh, the water is really more powerful and, and driven by the sun, of course. All this all weather on Earth is driven by the sun and the temperature difference between the equator and the poles. Uh, and that temperature di difference drives uh, storm fronts and hurricanes and the jet stream and the ocean currents, uh, very powerful forces. And CO2 is, is relatively small compared to all of those. So you're talking about what drives things. Um, the consistent um glaring uh ignoring of basic scientific facts by a number of quote unquote climate scientists is that driven by funding you think well it's it's hard to say um obviously the the uh, climatism is used by many the political leaders use the fear of global warming to to get policies uh, promoted um, we have uh, the governments of the world now uh, fund so much work and so much research that the money coming from governments to fund things is, is a tremendous uh, pile of, of, uh, of funds. 
as I talk about in my second book, uh, one uh, computer modeler said, you know, it takes uh, uh, $50 million a year to set up a climate modeling team and about $20 million a year to run such a team. We have more than 30 of these, 30 of these teams around the world now. So, so it's a very, very big industry. And, you know, if your team comes up and says, uh, I don't think climate is, is from our carbon dioxide emissions. I think natural factors drive it. You know, they're, they're putting at risk their funding. So funding is certainly a factor. Uh, I, I still think most climate scientists think we do have a real problem. But the evidence is uh, the computer projections are not, not bearing out. And the evidence doesn't really show that uh, we're, we're out, of, out of step with what's happened throughout history. Yeah, the great Galileo some centuries ago, I think it was the first scientist to say, you know what? It looks like the world actually is round. And um, boy, um, he got in a lot of trouble over that. And I think a lot of these climate scientists who rely on government funding don't want to be this generation's Galileo. Yeah, I talk about in my first book, Climatism, uh, which I wrote in 2010. There have been Many, many attacks on scientists who have spoken out uh, against the theory of man-made warming. Uh, there's a, there was a, uh, a, a biologist in England whose name escapes me, who, but he, was, uh, he had been on BBC shows, uh, like 400 different shows. He was head of three environmental organizations. He came out in about 1993 or four and said, well, I, I, think, I don't think we really know what drives the climate. I think wind turbines are kind of silly. And he basically was blackballed. He never got on another uh, British TV show. Uh, he had to resign from all of his environmental organizations. Uh, and if you're at, a, at, you're at a college, you don't have tenure yet, and you speak out against the theory of man-made warming, it's very difficult to get tenure. Uh, it, is, it is very, very tough. Um, and so you have folks. Uh, uh, we've had other scientists, Dr. Roy Spencer, who's uh, a, a great scientist down at uh, Alabama, Huntsville. He used to be with NASA, and he said, you know, when everybody was with, with NASA, we all played ball. We wanted the next satellite. So nobody questioned the theory of man-made warming. But you find all these uh, people like uh, Harrison Schmidt, who wrote the foreword for my second book, who was uh, one of the last two guys uh, to stand on the moon. Uh, he was with NASA, and he came out and said he didn't think uh, uh, climate change was was uh, driven by humans. And, and so... Uh, you know, there's just there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that will attack you if you come out and, and uh, push against the, the theory of climatism. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So. For a little while, it seemed like the term uh, climate change was going to, you know, completely supplant global warming. But now they go back and forth. They use each one. Uh, some scientists are out there saying that global warming is definitely causing forest fires. What's the real yeah. story? <laughs> yeah, well, the governor, Governor Newsom of California, has been pitching that for several years. And he's even taken, uh, he's been interviewed standing next to a fire and saying, uh, if you don't believe in climate change, come to California. Uh, it is true. California is probably the biggest center of this. Uh, but we had some things with Hawaii where people were claiming it as well. Uh, in California, the, 10 of the top 20 California fires have occurred in the last year, last 10 years in terms of damage. But the real question is, what is causing that? Is it the 
Um, the fraction of a degree rise in temperatures, the gentle uh, warming we've had, or is it other factors? Uh, there was a group called the Little Hoover Commission in 2018 that issued a report, and they said uh, they've had a century, a century of fire suppression in California. And they also pointed out that, that fires are a natural way that a forest is restored. Um, and also, uh, tim- timber harvesting is down 65% since 1980. And so what we have in California now is we have forests that are choked with dead trees, uh, trees that have had uh, disease. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service also, also issued a report in 2018 estimating that we're, there were 147 million dead trees in California. And so when, when we have these, when these fires occur, they just, they're uncontrollable. They burn and, and they can't stop them uh, because all of all this dead tinder and bushes that, that is on the ground. So the key here is not climate change, it's, it's forest management. Uh, and by the way, uh, interesting study by NASA uh, several years ago, NASA uh, actually looks down and tracks every forest fire on the surface of the earth with satellites. And they track the burned area. Every year in August, we have about 10,000 fires burning across the globe. But the interesting thing that NASA found is that global burned area has been declining over the last 15 years. It's down about 20% uh, across the world. So you got to kind of scratch your head and say, okay, well, if, if a burned area is declining across the world, how could it be increasing in California because of forest fires? And the answer is it isn't. It's because of forest management. California's got to do a better job in that department. Our interview with Steve Gorham, author of Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, will continue in just a moment. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever 
went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29 and twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once in a lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season moccasin slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slipper Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com, quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. And now, here's more of our interview with Steve Gorham. Well, you know, you're talking about the... um the the policy there of leaving dead trees and dead vegetation all over the uh, the forest floor it's like kindling i mean you're going to yeah. have forest fires because of the mismanagement you're talking about yeah and environmental laws even made it difficult for people to clear the forest on their own land uh you had to get permits just to build a, a on your private land to build a, a gravel road that sort of thing so there were there were uh uh, people didn't want any. They didn't want the forest to be touched, and um, as a result, we now have uh, these forests that are ready to go up if there's a fire. Yeah, I've seen some horrendous videos of like uh, a father and a child in a car on a highway, like a, a two lane road. And there's just fire on both sides, and he's like, "Calm down, calm down, calm down. We're going to make it." And then eventually, you come out and it's blue skies. Hey, hey, you know, at first you think oh, it must be nighttime. There's, there's, you know, there it's just told pitch dark except for the fires on both sides, right up to the road, and then you come out and it's it's blue sky, and you're like, man, um, they barely made it. Some people didn't make it, and you know these uh, these policies I think are are costing some people their lives. Well, they're starting to get they're starting to get in line. They're doing more forest management recently, spending more money. Uh, Pacific Gas and Electric is is looking to bury a lot of its uh, transmission lines, which is very very expensive. But uh, I think they'll eventually get it under control. They really have no out, uh, alternative, though. If if Gov- Governor Newsom thinks everybody drives an electric car and the forest fires will go away, he re- he really needs needs to get better advice. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're talking about um, energy and where the powers that be are trying to take us. And one of the things your book talks about, there are a lot of practical drawbacks to wind and solar. Um, 
you know, I, I've been hearing for a while that the equipment that is used eventually has to be discarded, which is an eco- ecological uh, nightmare in and of itself. Wind and solar drive up the cost of energy. Wind turbines kill an awful lot of birds. Offshore wind farms are killing a lot of sea life. These are just a handful of problems. So why are these expensive, environmentally disastrous technologies uh, being foisted upon us? Well, it's all it's all based on the fear of human caused warming. The idea is we can uh, we would push to replace uh, coal, natural gas uh, plants in particular with uh, wind turbines and solar, and we would do, we would reduce carbon dioxide emissions by a large amount. Uh, and so that's what's driving all this. Uh, but again, uh, wind and solar really do not make environmental sense when you really think about it. <clears throat> Uh, another thing I like to ask audiences, another rhetorical question. If you have a, an energy source that, uh, provide, that uses one unit of land to produce one unit of electricity, uh, and you have another energy source that uses a hundred units of land to produce one unit of electricity, which is more environmentally friendly? <laughs> Seems pretty obvious, right? But uh, a guy by the name of Vaclav Smil has written a book on this when he looked and he looked at the the area footprint of every electricity source, including transportation and pipelines and mines and waste pits, everything. And it turns out that if you set a nuclear at at one unit of electrical output for one unit of land, then coal is about one point four units of land. And um, natural gas is about 0.8 units of land for that one unit of output. But then you go and you look at solar, it's, it's more than 100 units of land to produce that one unit of electricity output. Wow. Wind is, wind is somewhere between 35 and 835 units of land. And that depends on, if you just count the, the concrete uh, foot pads for the towers and the roads, it's about 35 times. But if you count the whole area, it's, it's 800 times as much land as a nuclear plant. And then uh, biofuels, if you're burning wood for electricity, it's 1,500 units of land for one unit of output. And so the, the first big problem with wind and solar is the land. The second big problem is the cost. Uh, and you're, all kinds of headlines say, wow, wind and solar are cheaper than coal. They're the cheapest for electricity. But these usually talk about a marginal cost of producing one unit of electricity. But when you look at the whole system and you include new transmission that has to be built and you include the cost of intermittency, you find that everywhere that wind and solar are deployed, they're more expensive. Uh, in Europe, for example, uh, now the nations that produce, that have the most wind and solar, if wind and solar were cheaper, you would expect those to have the lowest electricity costs. But it's exactly the opposite. The nations that have the most wind and solar deployed have the highest electricity costs. Uh, Denmark and Germany are two examples. Uh, the price of electricity in Denmark and Germany is three times the United States price. And you see a similar thing in the United States, where we are in the, in the states that are deploying wind, the top 12 wind states, most of those have electricity prices that are rising faster than the national average. Uh, places like Kansas, uh, California, Minnesota, very expensive. Uh, so the evidence shows that not only are we taking more land, but we're using a lot 
higher, uh, we're, we're charging ratepayers a lot more wherever we put in a lot of wind and solar. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it drives, drives up the price of everything. I want to go back to the name of your book, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. What do you mean by this title? What kind of energy failures are we to expect? So this is really a failure of net zero. Uh, the wealthy nations of the world today, which is about one-seventh of the world population, uh, the United States, Europe, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and a few others, are driving toward a thing called net zero. And net zero means that we should, we should not have carbon dioxide emissions anymore. We should get rid of all of them. But if you build a house today, if you heat a house, if you uh, generate electrical power, if you have transportation, if you have heavy industry, all those things exhaust large amounts of carbon dioxide. But net zero says, well, we got to get rid of all that. And we have to, uh, whatever we can't uh, get rid of as far as emissions, we have to use carbon carbon dioxide capture and storage. So that's what the wealthy nations, the U.S. and others are driving for. Uh, it's just not going to happen, though. What we're going to have is a green breakdown. Uh, this this goal of net zero is beyond a reach out. It's beyond. It's more like a wish and a prayer. One guy compared it to uh, jumping out of a plane and hoping a parachute was invented on the way down. <laughs> oh man! Wow. <laughs> but it's just not. It's going to break down, and uh, it's going to mean higher energy prices. It's going to mean electricity blackouts. It's going to mean less freedom for people because they want to take away your gas stove and your gasoline car. And we're also going to have transnational energy shocks the more that these renewables are deployed, like we've seen in Europe over the last two years. And so this whole uh, energy transition is going to break down. People are going to demand a return to low-cost, reliable energy. And that's what the book uh, Green Breakdown is about. Yeah, you... um You've been reading my mind here. You must have ESPN too. You, you're, you're really concerned. Uh, there are going to probably be power blackouts right here in America. Um, how severe do you think they're going to be? And, and what led you to this conclusion? Well, there's a lot of evidence. Hey, we've already had some breakdowns. Let me read you something, though, from uh, a Federal Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, a commissioner, Mark Christie. Mr. Christie testified before the Senate in June, and he said, quote, I think we are headed for very dire consequences, potentially catastrophic consequences in the United States in terms of the reliability of our grid, unquote. And he went on to say that we're closing coal and natural gas plants too fast, and those are the things that keep the lights on. And... uh, that is, a, that is a factor. The, the biggest problem with, with wind and solar after uh, land area and cost is intermittency. Uh, wind can go from uh, full output to nothing in a matter of hours. Uh, solar, of course, doesn't work uh, in the, uh, when the sun's not shining, when it's cloudy. And both of these sources are not good in the winter. Uh, typically, winds are down and, and we don't have sunlight. And so, uh, what what uh, power engineers have to do, the grid operators, they have to keep all of the or many, 90% of the traditional plants around and ready to turn on. They have to, and they operate them at very low uh, utilization. 
for when the wind and, and solar don't blow. And so then they, the prices go way, way up because now you have all this extra infrastructure you're keeping around. Or if you decide, well, we're not going to keep it around, then you end up with blackouts. And we've had some of those. In California, for example, California gets about 20% of their electricity in August from, from solar until about 6 p.m. at night. And then by 7, it's gone. And if you have anything else that's not working or fails, then you have to impose blackouts on people. You have to stop shipping them power. And in Texas, we had the worst case, February 2021. We had lethal blackouts. Uh, power was off in Texas for 72 hours to more than 4.5 million people. And the estimates are that somewhere between 250 and 700 people died from that incident. And that's more than a major hurricane. We also had blackouts in Oklahoma. And the more wind and solar are deployed and we we retire coal and natural gas, the more of these blackout situations uh, we're going to see. And nationally, we've actually seen uh, a data from the Energy Information Administration about uh, 2012, 2013, the average rate payer was seeing about three hours a year of power outages. Now that's up to about eight hours a year. It's more than doubled in the last decade. And so we're headed for uh, blackouts. And again, this is going to be part of the breakdown. People are just going to say, hey, <laughs> we got to do something else here. Uh, by the way, Texas, again, they, they made it through this summer, but in August and September, they issued 10 low-power emergency notices. They said, we don't have enough electricity. Uh, don't plug in your EV. Don't turn on your air conditioning. I mean, this is not the way we should be running power systems. They need reliable, low-cost power like we, we've had in the past. Absolutely. And the thing about Texas, you're thinking, well, several hundred people lost their lives during a 72-hour blackout for 4.5 million people in February a couple of years ago. And so immediately you're thinking, wow, that many people froze to death. But then you're thinking, well, maybe some of them froze to death. But then again, maybe some of them were people in hospitals where the generators only lasted so long. Maybe some of them were people in home health situations who were reliant on whatever kind of machinery that had to have electricity. I, I guess the the big problem here is that, as you have alluded to just a few moments ago, this transition from cheap, reliable power that works to a technology that doesn't work has real-world consequences that people like Al Gore and John Kerry and, and Gavin Newsom and and certainly Joe Biden back when he was, you know, uh, still coherent. They don't want to talk about any of this. It is remarkable uh, what's going on. But again, uh, people, this is going to be forced. And, and again, Europe is a Europe is a prime example. Over the last two years, uh, Europe came very close to uh, having wide area blackouts. We basically cut the lights on. Uh, shipping liquefied natural gas over to Europe through this last winter, ourselves in Qatar. Uh, they had very low stocks, and their natural gas prices uh, are are still up. It's improved a little, but they're still up a factor of three from what it was two years ago. Uh, their electricity prices are up by a factor of three or four. 
And if you talk to people in England, they're like, well, I, I can't turn on my oven anymore. I don't use a heater. I don't do this. I don't do that. Uh, they've had a step function decline in, in energy. In, in Hungary, they were putting uh, wood furnaces back in schools because they didn't have, uh, didn't have enough gas. They were afraid. And, you know, when you put in a wood furnace, if you burn wood or you burn coal, you increase the particulate levels by about a factor of a thousand over natural gas. So there's a lot of things going on, and uh, uh, it's just uh, it's just a uh, symptom of the coming breakdown that we're going to see as more and more renewables are pursued. Yeah. Now, when we talk about power blackouts, probably everyone watching this has been through a power outage at some point or another. It might have lasted a few minutes, a few hours, maybe a couple of days, but. We had a different term that is alarming. You were warning about what you call transnational energy shocks. Now, most of us, I think, have probably never heard about that, but it certainly doesn't sound good. Just what are transnational energy shocks? Well, again, I, I coined that phrase because that's what Europe went through in the last two years. Um, kind of a funny thing happened in 2021. Uh, well, I should say first, Europe has become very dependent on uh, two sources of electricity, intermittent wind and solar, and then natural gas. And most of the natural gas was imported. Well, the summer of 2021, uh, the wind didn't blow much in Europe. Uh, electricity output from wind was down 20 or 30 percent for the year. And so Europe burned natural gas instead. And by the end of the year, their stocks were very low. And so the price of the natural gas were up by a factor of five by December of 2021 from early in the year. Wow. And, and uh, this was before the Ukraine invasion. A lot of things have been blamed on the Ukraine invasion, but that didn't happen until February of 2022. And then prices skyrocketed further after that. And so they've done things like they, you know, they put, they have, Put in regulations saying you can only have your temperature in your your house or business this low in the summer. You can only have your temperature this high in the winter. Uh, they've been shutting off lights everywhere. Uh, in England, they they literally told people uh, don't bathe so much or shower with a friend, <laughs> which sounds like fun. But their but their uh, their energy bills were two or three thousand uh, dollars for the winter. I mean, they were huge. These energy bills. And it's, it's had a tremendous effect on their industry, too. Um, uh, fertilizer plants, metal smelting, uh, chemicals, steel. Many, many plants have had to close because the cost of energy is so high. And today, our, our uh, natural gas price is about four times lower than what it is in Europe. And so this is one of those shocks that has occurred. And uh, they were actually fortunate they had a warm w- winter this last winter. But uh, we could see a little bit of this, for example, in New England uh, uh, for many years. Uh, New England has a shortage of natural gas now most of the time. The state of New York stopped any pipeline building. So no pipelines over the last two decades have gotten to New England. And so they're importing liquefied natural gas at world prices, at those prices that are three and four times as high as the U.S. price. And so they pay three times as much as the rest of the country. If they get a very cold winter this this winter, they're going to have to choose between gas for heating homes and gas for electricity. Uh, Australia is another place. Australia has um, no nuclear plants, and only 6% of their electricity comes from hydroelectric power. 
the majority comes from coal and natural gas, and they're trying to replace all those. So when they replace a lot of that coal and natural gas, they're going to have big problems with intermittency, and they're going to have a, a big shock as well. But it's going to take uh, hard times for political leaders to come around to to the logic that uh, you know they need to have uh, reliable, low cost energy again. But this is going to occur. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? This is going to occur in the next decade or two. Yeah, it's go- it's going to occur. It's going to happen. Absolutely. So TV commercials. Um, ironically enough, a lot of them for car companies keep telling us that electric vehicles or EVs, as they're called, are the way of the future. Yeah. What are some of the pros and cons of these electric cars that they're trying to ram down our throats that Americans aren't buying what they're selling, by the way? Yeah, well, EVs first, they are going to penetrate world markets. They are. Last year, they were about uh, 13% of the world, much of that in, uh, of light vehicle, new light vehicle sales for the world, much of that in Europe and China. Uh, U.S. was about uh, just about seven, six, seven 6%, gone up a little higher this year. But a lot of these people were early adopters, and of course, and, and so I think it's going to move a little more slowly. We do have the governments of the world, though, subsidizing EVs, um, uh, both in, in uh, dollar terms and in access to cities and on expressways and those sorts of things. And we have uh, some states that, have, that are uh, banning uh, gasoline vehicles, California, uh, Oregon. Washington, New York State, uh, Massachusetts, I think, have put down either uh, um, policy statements or passed laws saying by 2035, nobody can be driving a a gasoline car. Uh, We haven't done that at a federal level, but the EPA is is putting regulations into place to force an EV transition, uh, both carbon dioxide emissions limits, the tightening, and vehicle mileage. And so uh, by about 2035, it's going to be impossible for any auto dealer to produce a line of uh, electric vehicles unless uh, these things change. Now, you as mean, you say, go ahead. Do you mean by 2035 it will be impossible to produce? To, man- to manufacture, yeah. Manufacture Man- gas-powered vehicles. Yes. What did okay. I say? An EV? Oh, my mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because they're, they're moving to EVs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But these things have some issues. They are, uh, first off, you have to put this big battery in, in an EV. That is the, the biggest issue. And it makes the car very heavy. Uh, you need about nine pounds of battery for every one pound of gasoline that's in your tank to go the same distance. And so EVs are going to be about 50% heavier. And wow, have you seen those new pickup trucks? It's pretty amazing. Um, the Ford F-150 gasoline pickup truck weighs about 6,400 pounds. I'm sorry, about 4,500 pounds. But the, uh, the EV, uh, the Ford F-150 EV, 6,400 6, pounds. And then if you go to the, the Chevy EV, it's all the way up to 8,500 pounds. <laughs> You're talking about a four-ton a four pickup truck. And so these things are, are going to be very heavy. Um, now, probably the biggest issue, though, is all the metals that are required for electric vehicle batteries. Uh, the Energy Information Agency says that 
Uh, an electric vehicle requires six times the special metals of a gasoline car. And those things are copper and lithium and nickel and cobalt. And so th- those are those are the things that are keeping the price of electric vehicles very high. Uh, those metals, they want to, uh, if, we, if we go to all EVs, we've got to increase global mining five or ten times to produce all the metals. Uh, that takes a very long time. And there's another really big issue with EVs, and that is they're really not very environmentally friendly. The public thinks EVs are very good environmentally because they don't emit carbon dioxide, but they don't look at how these vehicles are made. And they're made with all these metals. Now, now the special metals mostly come from developing nations uh, like Africa or South America. And then those ores that they dig up, most of that refining is done in China. So a typical case, for example, you need cobalt for almost all the uh, lithium batteries today. Cobalt is most, the biggest miner of cobalt is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, they produce 30 to 35 percent of the world's ore. And it's well known that in the cobalt mines, they're using children and they're using forced labor. And so they produce, so we have big social issues there. So they produce this ore and then they ship it to China for refining. And China has vast areas that are, have been polluted from metals refining. They have an area called Rare Earth Lake. And you stand next to it. As far as you can see, it, the land has been destroyed with metal, metal tailings. Anyway, then they produce a battery, and that comes to the United States. And so people can get an EV, a Tesla, or something else. <laughs> And they don't see they don't see all the problems, the social problems and the environmental problems with producing all these metals. Uh, and so EVs really are not very environmentally friendly. Uh, they've just been uh, have been uh, given that label by the press. The conclusion of our interview with Steve Gorham, author of Green Breakdown, the coming renewable energy failure is coming right up. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, Precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn silver coin. And tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes. 
as well as multi-line users. And switching to Pager Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Pager Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Pager Mobile. Pager Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone. This beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now the conclusion of our interview with Steve Gorham. When you talk about Democratic Republic of the Congo, there in West Africa, you talk about child labor, you talk about forced labor, which is kind of a polite way to say it's modern day slavery. These children are put to work um, pulling these rare metals out of the uh, the ground with their bare hands, uh, working very long hours, uh, and it's you know uh, it's it is definitely enforced on them. One of the, one of the problems too with with these EVs is the charging stations. Now nobody wants to talk about the fact that the electricity comes from coal. That's number one. Nobody also wants to talk about the fact that you, you're not going to be able to build enough charging stations on top of which, say you live in Florida, South Florida, and you have to evacuate for a hurricane that's going to hit pretty soon. And in the best of times, I-95 going north, I-75 going north, in the best of times is already a parking lot. And you have to stop every so often and charge up your EV. It's as, as my peeps would say, ain't no having it like the real thing. I mean, it's just these people. Yeah, you're right. It's a fantasy. Charging is a special problem. Now, if you can, if you can charge at home and you drive a short distance to work, that's usually pretty good. It can be cheaper than, than a uh, internal combustion engine car. Although in Europe right now, with the price of electricity, even charging at home is more expensive. But boy, if you have to charge uh, at a public charger, big big problems. Uh, it 
it takes a long time. Um, uh, these chargers are very expensive. Nobody wants to uh, put these in. Um, and if you just compare to a gas pump, let's say you're a gas station and you say, okay, a gas pump cost me about $20,000 to put in, but a, a 50 kilowatt DC high speed charger cost me $100,000, cost me five times as much. And then a gas pump, I can serve somebody in about six minutes, probably less usually. But if I charge an EV, it, it's about a 30 minute charge. So I can serve one fifth of the customers and the capital cost is five times as large. There's a 25 to one disadvantage with, with EV chargers. And so most gas station owners don't want to put these in. Um, if you live in an apartment, which is about 40% of our, of our uh, people, uh, what are you going to do? Run a line over the sidewalk out to the street? I mean, that doesn't work very well. By the way, cold weather is not good either. If you're in the northern climate, um, I was speaking at a conference, met a guy, and uh, his wife had a Tesla. They lived in Cleveland. And when it got down to 10 degrees last winter, it wouldn't charge. The car literally would not charge at 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And they talked to Tesla. Tesla says, well, it's kind of the way it is. But uh, so you, you either have to have a heated garage or there's many times when you're not going to be able to charge your vehicle. I've got a heated garage, but I don't want to, I don't want to heat my garage all winter. That'd be very expensive. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of disadvantages. Uh, with, by the way, uh, these lithium batteries are not fun either. Do you know what the, what the biggest source of fires is in New York City right now? Um, electric cars blowing up. Well, that's close. It's not cooking. It's not smoking. It is now e-bikes. They've had like um, uh, 20 deaths from e-bikes this year, Uh, something like 100 fires. And these lithium batteries on these e-bikes just explode. And then a lot of people die from it. It, It's really a sad situation. I've uh, we have a property in uh, in uh, Virginia Beach. I've told my manager, hey, (laughs) Don't let anybody have an e-bike, uh, and and you're right. There are, so there are issues with uh, with uh, electric cars with fires as well, and uh, there's just a lot of things that that we shouldn't be forcing everyone to get an electric car. That's the problem. I'm not against electric cars. Uh, don't force me to have to get one with the idea that I could stop the oceans from rising if I do. That's just that's just superstition. Yeah. Well, you know. Speaking of the, the the beach, if you get your EV too close um, to the beach, if if somehow or another, you know, uh, again, hurricane, whatever, and some salt water gets on your EV, it it, it catches fire. Uh, that's unlikely. Yeah, they do. If the, if the battery's damaged in any way, it becomes a very very big fire risk. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's an issue. And if you get in a minor collision and the battery's damaged, then they often have to replace the whole battery. It's uh, very expensive. Another example in England right now, it's getting very difficult to get uh, car insurance for electric vehicles. A lot of articles are coming out. People have, have gone to 10 different sources. Well, first, their, their previous insurer says we're not going to insure it anymore. They go to a whole bunch of sources and it costs them 5,000 pounds a year for a single EV to get auto insurance. U.S. not quite so bad, but an EV right now costs about seventy uh, percent more uh, EV to to insure. 
Uh, so we're starting to get seeing some prices here, but there are just a lot of issues. Again, um, don't force me to get an EV because you think you're going to make the storms less severe. Uh, let's let the market determine this and the manufacturers to work out their problems. Absolutely. You know, I, I should have asked this already. Uh, I, one of the points your book makes is that efforts to electrify everything will cause a loss of freedom in the United States of America. What, what do you mean by this? Well, and, and we've talked about EVs and how uh, uh, states are forcing people to go to electric vehicles. Another big, we have a battleground going on right now with gasoline stoves. Um, the idea here is that, uh, first off, it's claimed that gas stoves uh, cause health issues. Uh, a lot of articles came out last January. But when you look at who produces these, these are not, this isn't the health industry that's coming out with this stuff. These are climate proponents that are coming out and trying to claim that, that your gas stove causes health issues. All this is driven, driven by climate fear. But we have uh, cities and counties in about seven states now that are saying you can't put a gas appliance in a new construction. Uh, we're going to ban that. Uh, but we have a war going on in the U.S. We actually have 19 states right now that have passed laws saying uh, that cities and counties can't uh, ban uh, the, uh, a certain type of uh, energy in appliances and in housing. So, uh, but this is, this is again, a drive of, of climatism. They want to take away your, your opportunity to, to uh, put a gas stove in your, in your uh, facility. And so they got this, this uh, loss of freedom, both cars and, and appliances. Absolutely. Now, as our elites are trying to ram this unpractical, expensive, unworkable energy technology down our throats, the world's two biggest countries, China and India, are definitely headed in the opposite direction. Why do you think that is? And does this put our country at a competitive disadvantage? Well, in a lot of ways, green energy is a luxury for the wealthy nations. And in the case of China and uh, particularly India, there are many people without, without cooking yet or without uh, power. And so the best way to get there is, is to, is to uh, put in coal-fired power plants. Both China and India are increasing the amount of coal-fired power plants all the time. They're building more and more of them. And um, India is another example. There are around the world now we have uh, – we have a problem with people uh, cooking inside their facility with uh, biofuels, with wood and with charcoal, with, uh, uh, with dung, uh, with other sorts of organics. And uh, this is bad in your house. This raises your, your particulate levels. A house in, in many places, for example, you're up about 200 times as much as the particles we have in our homes here in the U.S., and so this causes respiratory diseases at high levels, and it does cause premature death. Uh, India, for example, has taken the step that they are going to get propane to all of their their uh, uh, lower level citizens, their lower income citizens, and we're shipping them that propane. We're the biggest ex exporter of propane gas in the world. More than half of our propane is exported, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi over there has set up about 100 distribution centers uh, to distribute propane cylinders uh, to up to 50 million people in India. 
And so it's really a great story. A lot of them are getting modern fuels now and they're getting rid of, of the pollution that's inside their house and they're cooking with modern fuels. But as you say, China and India are, are building coal plants. So it really doesn't matter what you do in, uh, in California or in the United States. Uh, our carbon dioxide levels are actually declining relative to the rest of the world. And uh, global uh, CO2 emissions continue to grow because we have about uh, six-sevenths of the world that continues to want to use more and more hydrocarbon fuels. Yeah, and that's not going to stop. You know, there are obviously some very powerful entrenched interests who are dedicated to ruining our energy situation here in America and, and, and frankly, taking down our economy by ruining our energy picture. What can the average American do to fight back? So I would advise the average American first to, to read my books. Um, the, uh, the recent one, Green Breakdown, uh, last month became uh, an Amazon number one bestseller on uh, energy industry. Uh, it's a color paperback, got uh, cartoons and a lot of great color sidebars, but it's still got a, about 970 notes and it's got all the science, complete discussion of the energy transition. You can get it at Amazon. Other uh, ebooks as well on Apple, Amazon, uh, Google, or they can go to my website, uh, Steve Gorham, G-O-R-E-H-A-M dot com, and I'll send them a signed copy. And then they need to educate themselves and they need to ask the next question to our political leaders. Um, how much will this lower global temperatures or why do you want to raise our energy prices again? Those sorts of questions. Uh, they need to ask informed questions. We really need to get back to what is sensible for, for, uh, for people, what will uh, uh, do the best for our people and help our country grow, and that's uh, low-cost, abundant energy. Amen. Absolutely. Let, let your members of Congress hear from you. Um, our guest today has been Steve Gorham. Great new book. Uh, his, his fourth one, uh, and they're all fantastic. It's Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. As Mr. Gorham uh, mentioned, it's available at his website, stevegorham.com, G-O-R-E-H-A-M. Also, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, where, wherever you're used to getting books. Uh, sir, thank you so much for coming on the Doc Washburn Show today. Do you have any parting, parting thoughts for our viewers? Thank you, Doc. It's been great to join you. Keep up your good work, and uh, I'm always available in the future. We've got a... Uh a UN uh, climate conference coming up in about a month and a half and <laughs> uh, more foolish stuff. So uh, uh, let's, uh, let's keep uh, uh, moving toward uh, sensible policy. Amen. It'll be uh, a good idea to kind of keep track of when that, when that does come up. Steve Gorham, uh, we wish you Godspeed. Thank you so much for coming on the, uh, the program today and God bless you. Our tweet of the day is brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online at redriverauto.com and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the day. Today's tweet of the day is from the great Victor Davis Hansen. And the tweet has a title. It's called Israel versus a death cult. He says, here are the three considerations, the three critical considerations that must be understood 
about the current Israel-Hamas conflict. It is a sort of half-war. It consists of a military trying to defeat an organized clique of passive-aggressive, media-obsessed, tribal murderers. It is not really a war. This so-called war did not begin with a military assault. It is nothing like the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur Wars, or indeed most other conflicts. It broke out with a surprise assault by between 1,500 and 2,500 gunmen of the Hamas death squads during peace and on a holiday. They entered Israel in a long-planned hit operation to murder civilians and take captives, focusing specifically on butchering the most vulnerable, the elderly, women, children, and infants, and in the most grotesque fashion imaginable. Their desire was to be as savagely pre-civilizational as possible. The more macabre the manner of murder, the more fertile their sophistry, that they were reduced to such repulsive bloodlust by their worse oppressors. It would be as though gruesome mafia hitmen had claimed they were forced to become animal-like due to even worse systemic anti-Italian bias. Even the Mexican cartels do not claim that they are led to behead people because of the injustice of the Mexican government. By pre-planned design, women were raped and children and infants were burned alive, bound and executed, and yes, beheaded. The dead were often mutilated. Some 1,400 Israelis were butchered, the vast majority civilians. Some 3,500 to 4,500 were wounded. Hamas never planned to stage a preemptive war against the Israeli military. Its only agenda was to send killers to unprotected villages to murder the unarmed as they slept. In the manner of Nazi Einsatzgruppen and other mobile death squads on the Eastern Front in World War II. Almost immediately, they counted on using hostages, human shields, and the media to avoid any accounting from the Israeli Defense Force. To distract from the murder mission, Hamas launched some 5,000 rockets, all intended as terror weapons to strike civilians in the fashion of the V1 and V2 attacks on London back in World War II. What followed is the most asymmetrical war in memory, so-called war. The IDF is the only military in the world told to be proportionate in its use of retaliatory force. Not the U.S. after 9-11 and not Ukraine after February 24, 2022. No Arab army or terrorist cadre has ever waged a war under the rules of proportionality. 
Can anyone remember a conflict other than the ones involving the U.S. or Britain in which those attacked in their response are expected to first phone or drop leaflets warning their target areas? Does Hamas do that when it launches its rockets at Israeli cities? It is not an anti-colonial struggle. Gaza is not anyone's colony. It has been autonomous since 2006-2007. No free Israeli Arab Muslim citizen would willingly emigrate to Gaza to live under the dictatorship of Hamas. And for good reason. Gaza has been the recipient of aggregate billions, with a B, in cash from the Gulf monarchies, Europe, the U.S., the U.N., and expatriate remittances. The more money came in, the less Hamas had any intention of using it to serve its people. Most of the gifted funds were used to build the world's largest subterranean city of death to buy drones and rockets and to pay gunmen to kill Jews. Essentially, Hamas is an enormous mafia-like shakedown and hostage-taking operation that threatens the general peace, the moderate Arab nations, the Western democracies, and Israel with terrorist operations and kidnapping unless sufficiently bribed to behave. Usually, Soldiers wear uniforms in battle, and their faraway civilian overseers do not. Hamas killers in action wear anything, but their distant leaders in safety often prefer uniforms themselves. So Hamas is primarily neither a government nor even an armed force designed to fight other soldiers, but rather some eerie updated SS or Mexican-like cartel. Was that reality at the time? unknown to Gazans who once voted them into power or to its unhinged supporters on the streets and campuses of the U.S. who celebrated its murder missions and damned Israel even before Israel responded? Only Hamas is deliberately targeting civilians. Hamas fires its rockets at Israeli civilians from hospitals, schools, U.N. facilities, and mosques. Again. Note the logic. Hamas assumes that Israel fights wars more humanely than Hamas itself does, and so will both try to avoid Hamas's Palestinian human shields and, of course, never itself employ such a barbaric tactic. Since, among other humane reasons, Israeli civilians would attract rather than deflect a Hamas rocket. The Israelis avoid collateral damage. There's not even such a concept for Hamas. All of its attacks are primarily aimed at civilians. Collateral damage for Hamas follows from accidentally encountering the IDF. How Orwellian that the world demands that Israel, in its efforts to prevent Hamas rocket launches aimed exclusively at its civilian population, must not hurt a single civilian who is impressed to shield the rocket launchers. Note well, Hamas's air campaign is specifically designed to kill civilians. 
Israel's air campaign is specifically designed to avoid them. In Israel, rockets are used to shield civilians. In Gaza, civilians are used to shield rockets. Hamas seeks to force the Israeli military to violate the rules of war. Israel accepts that there are no rules that Hamas gunmen would ever follow. The odd result is that a sick world, hear me now, the odd result is that a sick world is more accepting of deliberate mass murdering by Hamas than occasional accidental collateral damage by Israel. Now that is the great Victor Davis Hansen. And today's Tweet of the Day actually has a title to it. And rightly so. It's called Israel versus a Death Cult. Today's Tweet of the Day is brought to you by Red River Auto. The big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you want to. RedRiverAuto.com. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the day. You've been watching episode 413 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it is, Tuesday, October 24th, 2023.